Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. Uh, Groundhog Day. I uh, just saw the Pucks Tony Phil, saw his shadow, six more weeks of winter. I don't, do, um, do, you, do you know, because I actually saw the video, and it's just like in the movie Groundhog Day. The, the words that they say are the same words. Did the movie just take the words from the ceremony uh, as it's always been? Or has the ceremony decided to uh, emulate the movie? My, I don't know. My guess is that the movie took it from the that that it that it replicated the the weirdness that happens in this uh, Pennsylvania town. And Bill, there's so many good things about that movie. By the way, I saw that movie in the theaters when it I, came I, out. I, I did too. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I was like one of the few, but uh, it, I it was a it was a popular movie at the time. <laughs> was it? Was it? Was it? I don't think. I mean. I certainly don't think we knew that it was gonna that we'd be talking about it thirty years later. Sure, I don't know if it was. It was. An, I don't know if it was an obvious classic, timeless classic at the time. But this was an age, Matt. You may, you may recall that in the nineties, if it was a Friday night, you would pick up your newspaper, look at the movie listings, and there'd be like three or four things that were new that coming out. And you would probably go to see one of them. And then we talk about that movie with your friends and colleagues at work on Monday. That, that, that's how life worked back then. Well, those were some good times. And I have to say, one of my there's a, a lot of things I love about that movie. And I think, as Charles Murray has pointed out, I think there are uh, some incredibly redeeming values in the movie. But one of my favorite but scenes. No, no relation between Charles Murray and, and Bill Murray. No relation as far as we know. Um, and by the way, I am getting some static now, but it's it's unusual. Like it, it's every once in a while when you talk, I'll hear it sort of like when, when you were doing the earbuds. But um, who knows? But um, one of my favorite parts about um, about the movie is, you know, after multiple times of him doing the same news report, the same like sort of live stand up when he I, and I, I wish I had the words in front of me, but he gives this just poetic um, dissertation. I don't know how to describe it, you know, his stand up. And I think like everyone like Chris Peterson is that, you know, and he's like his cameraman. Everyone's like applauding him that this is so uh, erudite and uh, sophisticated. That's one of my favorite favorite scenes <laughs> well the one thing i don't like about the movie is the final shot uh which seems very half-assed very wait a second uh, so he wakes up and he can tell that it's a new day and he opens the window right. and it's there's snow uh, there's snow on the ground right uh yeah. and we get the we get the impression that that he and uh who, who's the Who's his his uh, the starring the leading lady in that? Mary Steenburgen. Okay, right. So before who later was married to was Andy or Andy McDowell? Wait, Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Andy McDowell. Right. Um, Andy McDowell. Uh, and they they end up together. Right. It's a happy right. ending. What's well, not I mean, to love? I mean, happy ending's fine. I mean, that the the basic plot resolution is fine. But they walk outside, and he just turns her and says. Let's live here. And that's the end. It really feels like, uh, what are we going to do with this last scene? I don't know. Let's that's live here. Thing, we got is, Wrap it up. Go home. It's that is rushed. such a Bill Murray thing, though. That is like, I would say, a, a, a that's a typical, that is Bill Murray. So well, I think my, my understanding is, um, I haven't gone back and looked at these interviews and articles about it, but um, uh, the Bill Murray was a colossal pain in the ass on the set. And it, it caused irrevocable harm to his relationship with Harold Ramis. And they were not on speaking terms until Ramis was on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think everyone like really was sick and tired of the filming. And they weren't going to do that shot, you know, 30 times and get, get that line right. Um, and of course, they were in Ghost. They had been in Ghostbusters together, right? Uh, Co-starring in Ghostbusters. Oh, I mean, I think they had a long relationship. Yeah, um, probably going back to like improv troops yeah. and stuff like that. Um, well, Bill, 
It is Groundhog Day, but but the big news, the big news uh, is that you are uh, you've got a gig. I got, got a I got I got a, I got a real job. I'm a I'm a I'm a grown up boy. Um, you know, I haven't had a full time salaried work in five years. Um, I've been freelance this whole time, uh, but I've and I've been freelancing for the Washington Monthly for the last couple of years, and they have graciously brought me on full time as a as their politics editor. So I'm still gonna be, still gonna be writing. You're still gonna see my stuff there, but I'll also be working my magic on, on other people's stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, there may be some other projects that we do too. So so stay tuned. Very cool. Congrats on that. Um, of course, being a corporate shill uh, always pays well, but but now <laughs> being a full time employee. Well, here's you get the thing best. about me, Matt. Um, I literally. Like the time in my life that I have not worked for a non, I, I mean, basically since 2001, I've either worked for a nonprofit or been freelance. Um, very, very tiny parts of my life working for a for-profit business or corporation. Yet I'm, as you know, the biggest corporate chill. You know that. Walks well, when you the do earth. the bidding of Exxon for free, uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to put a, a label on that. But anyway, we, we should we should move on, Bill. Um, uh, but, but, for folks who don't know, I mean, you should know. But the Washington Monthly really is a very storied publication. It's been around for over fifty years, and it has long played a role in uh, producing. Uh, liberal progressive content that is not cookie cutter, not uh, predictable. Uh, and it's really played a, a strong role in, in enriching the conversation, you know, on the left to center spectrum. So uh, it's a really, I've, I've loved the magazine since I was, since I was young and started reading political magazines. And so it's really a treat to be able to be part of the, part of the team. Uh, congrats. Um, Bill, before we move on, I wanted to ask you, have you ever listened to this podcast called Behind the Bastards? Are you familiar with this? I'm not. Oh, you should check this out. Um, I think it's fairly, fairly famous. It's I think it's part of the iHeartRadio, uh, whatever, network. Um, but but it's 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 clearly from a left wing point of view. But they basically will go. I think it started off. The bastard started off being like Saddam Hussein and Idi Amin, but now it's basically like Ted Cruz or Phyllis mm -hmm. Schlafly or mm -hmm. Glenn Beck. And they'll start off. Um, it's it, basically it's it's uh, it's like a host who is is also I think a comedian or certainly funny, um, and he'll invite like a couple of others on, typically with comedic chops, and he'll basically go through their biography. Um, so you learn something, you know, it'll be like Phyllis Schlafly was born in such and such year and this such and such place. But then also they make fun of them. Um, and it's actually pretty funny and you learn something. So, uh, check that out. You're one step removed from like being a Chapo Trap House listener. What, what's happening to you, man? <laughs> well, the reordering is weird, man. <laughs> We're all going to end up, you know, you're going to, you know, Glenn, Greenwald and uh, and 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 Matt Taibbi are going to be uh, the right wingers, and uh, it's all crazy. Well, perhaps Nikki Haley can save us. Maybe, maybe, Bill. You probably saw that there was an announcement that there will be an announcement that Nikki Haley uh, will probably run for president. Um, and I think the general consensus that I'm seeing, at least on Twitter, is that she's really running to be vice president. I don't, I don't and, get that. I don't get that presumption. Well, I I disagree. I, I tend to 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 go with this, but but tell me why that is. Tell me why that is. Well, why would it? I mean, I, that presumption is you're not going to beat Trump. You're trying to beat Trump's VP. It, it, it's not a play to beat DeSantis's VP, right? It's a play to beat Trump's VP. I mean, DeSantis is somewhat more of a traditional political operator, uh, and if he was the nominee, you could see him picking a VP who ran against him, uh, wasn't too mean to him, but 
represents a distinct faction of the party that he needs to add to his coalition. And so the political math makes sense. Um, but, but Trump, I have a very hard time seeing Trump picking a previous opponent to him. He, he, yeah. he, he's, when he's never played the game that way. Uh, granted, in 2016, he picked somebody outside of his coalition. He, he didn't have the evangelicals yet. Mike Pence, he, Mike Pence had tepidly endorsed Ted Cruz, as I recall. Right, right. So we needed, so we needed someone who represented the Cruz voters, but wasn't Cruz himself. Yeah. So, so one, I don't see Trump in particular going for an opponent of his. Number two, it's pretty rare that anybody picks an opponent of theirs. That's not a typical thing. Wait a second. Wait a second. Don't we have Vice President Kamala Harris? Last time I checked, didn't she um, run? So, so like Harris was an opponent, although she dropped out ahead of time. George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, where Bush was a, was a fallback choice. He wanted Ford. Um, I don't uh, think he, I don't think he wanted Ford, but Ford was well, they, going to they, get. They, they thought he needed to expand his coalition. Needed more of a moderate person. Ford was his first choice. Ford rejects him during the convention, and Bush is is the fallback. Um, so Biden is nominally an opponent of Obama's in two thousand eight. But not one who gets very far. I mean, there was there was a certain push to have it be Hillary, and Obama's like, ah, that's too much for me. Uh, so I mean, like Harris and Biden are examples of opponents who fizzled out, uh, and so weren't real. So it's not like you run for president and do well, and then get to be on the ticket. For a president, you do terribly, then maybe you you can be back in the mix. Well, but um, I I think it's reasonable to think that Nikki Haley may. Her campaign may go about as well as Kamala Harris's. Maybe, but um, at the very least, Bill. At the very least, it's um, it's a Plan B. May, I, it's got to be in the back of her mind. I'm going to run. The better Plan B is to suck up. The better Plan B is to suck up to Trump now. I don't. I, I wouldn't play, take chances getting on his bad side by running for president. Uh, I would get be on that surrogate stage and like. You know, be, you know, uh, women of color for Trump, you know, president. Yeah. Do that. I, I, we're still getting some. Do you just want to take off that mic? Maybe we're still getting the static. I don't know. It's your, your call. Uh, well, if I do that, I need to go hustle and find my earbuds. OK, well, let's just roll with it. But there okay. is some. It's weird, though. I can never figure it out because it's not a consistent thing. It it happens. And who knows why? Um, but anyway, um, Okay, Bill. So let me make let me make my my case of why I think this is potentially problematic. Okay, so okay. I do believe that Nikki Haley. Um, and by the way, I think the the case you present is is perfectly logical, except Nikki Haley may not be seeing it the way you're seeing it. Maybe you should talk to her and explain to her how to become. I, maybe 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 there's a calculation, but I, I presume that. She's running in hopes that Trump and DeSantis beat the hell out of each other and bleed each other, bleed each other dry, and there's room for a third candidate to run up the middle. I think that's her best case scenario, maybe in her mind, and I I suspect that it's like, and if that doesn't work, this positions me to be the running mate. And the potential problem with that is, you know, there's the the movie Moneyball. Um, oh, no, no, not Moneyball, not Moneyball, a different Brad Pitt movie, Ocean's Eleven. So you remember okay. Ocean's Eleven, uh, George Clooney, Danny Ocean, is trying to rob, you know, the casinos, but he's also trying to get his wife, Tess, Julia Roberts, back. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing two things. And, and Brad Pitt, you know, at some point figures this out uh, and confronts George Clooney and says, like, here's the problem. Now you're trying to steal two things. <laughs> and Tess doesn't split, you know, 11 ways or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the problem that Nikki Haley is potentially trying to steal two things. And the danger is she becomes a stalking horse for Donald Trump. Bill, I don't know if you remember this, but in 2012, I was given the I, I had the impression at certain points that Michelle Bachman and Ron Paul 
were both running interference for Mitt Romney, even though Mitt Romney was the establishment candidate, right? And they should have been maybe supporting Rick Perry or Newt Gingrich. But it really felt to me like Michelle Bachman and Ron Paul, in a weird sort of way, were helping Romney. And, you know, it's, there's already a danger of Trump benefiting from a large field uh, where he wins with a plurality, like he did last time in these winner-take-all states. He gets all all the delegates in 30% of, of the vote or something like that. But I think that there is a scenario where Nikki Haley is in the race, doesn't attack Trump, but does go after the other people, like the the Ron DeSantis's, uh, the, the Larry Hogan's, uh, the John Bolton's, I don't know. Um, and maybe I'm paranoid, but I think that's something to keep an eye on. Well, I just don't assume that... Like it, it could well be that she focuses her attention on other non-Trump candidates because there's three, four, five, six, ten in the race, uh, and they're and they're jockeying to be the anti-Trump candidate, and so you try to best them and recognize I'm not going to peel off voters from Trump. Trump voters are Trump voters. Uh, I don't think that means that her intention is to make life easier for Trump. She just try, she would be trust trying to be the person who gets to face off against Trump in the finals. Um, but in this particular case, because presuming DeSantis gets in, uh, and they're both clearly the two front runners here, uh, I don't know if it makes logical sense to... If, if, if they're the two front runners, and Haley spends 90% of her time attacking Ron DeSantis and, and laying off of Donald Trump, then yes, you, you could argue she's being a stalking horse for Donald Trump. Uh, if she is hanging back, I'm just trying to be positive with Nikki Haley or taking pot shots with the two of them or saying it's just it's time for new leadership or something like that. Then I don't think she's being a stalking horse. Uh, yeah, and Trump, may the best woman win. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about her that's super annoying is this bless their heart sort of Southern belle uh, thing she's got going. Um, which I used to, which I, I think, I mean, it, there is a, a charm to it, but it's also like, yeah, these are serious issues. You're supposed to be running for president. And instead, it's it's like almost a passive aggressive sort of campaign where and she's been on. She just literally said she wouldn't run against Trump. You know, if Trump runs, she wouldn't run. And now she's doing it. So um, anyway. Well, well, I mean, I mean, she is a she starts off kind of flawed because she has been this political chameleon for a long time that started to become baked into her her narrative. Uh, granted, the average person doesn't pay close attention to it, but the political reporters do. And they're the ones that write the initial stories. And so that becomes something in your bio that you have to overcome. So I'm, I'm hardly arguing that I think she's got a lock on the nomination. You know, I think. I'll, uh, but any, I think anyone running, first and foremost, should not be telling themselves, this is a great way to be Trump's VP, because I don't think it is. I don't think Trump's going to pick from that pool. Um, and two, I think they're banking on, and they, and they may think it's not even a better than 50-50 shot, but if there is any shot, it is Trump and DeSantis ruining each other and the electorate casting their eyes somewhere else. And quite frankly, that I mean, I'm not saying it's something that I expect to happen. I think it's a massive unknown how the average Republican primary voter reacts to mommy and daddy fighting, to Ron and Donald fighting. Uh, and does it make them side with one or the other, or does it make them sick of both of them? I, it, there, there's literally no precedent in the modern presidential primary era of a former president running in the primary. We don't know, and as any former president, one who is deeply polarizing and has, you know, absolute, you know, ride or die supporters and people who are just sick to death of them. So it, it's just, there's just no way to discern how this plays out looking at existing poll data. That's not going to give you enough information. Well, let me say, Bill, uh, coincidence or not, last week on this very program, 
you were saying that uh, Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis, they, they need to get in and they need to start, you know, mixing it up. And and now this is happening. So, well, you let me were, a caveat, though, I did say I wrote about this for Real Clear Politics. I think it's legit for a sitting governor to bide their time. Well, he has they, to wait until the, like, the legislative session is over. Right. I mean, yeah. they, they, they're busy. They probably want to get a few wins in their pocket that they can, they can run on. So I don't think it's fair to say you're waiting because you're afraid of Trump. They have legitimate reasons to wait. Uh, beyond sitting, and so sitting governors, considering presumably DeSantis, Brian Kemp, Christy Nome, Chris Sununu, Greg Abbott. I think that's who we're talking about here. Um, Everybody else, if you're a sitting congressperson, which quite frankly, very few of them are really considering it. You know, this, this might be a rare year. Where all, all, we might even have we might have no senators running. I mean, we're Hale, uh, Hawley, Cotton, and Rick Scott have already taken themselves out. We've seen Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Tim Scott do some of that Iowa, New Hampshire travel over the past couple of years. But some of the recent reporting is, you know, maybe. Maybe Cruz and Rubio aren't going to do it. And, you know, Tim Scott, he's got he's sitting on a, on a pile of money, um, but he hasn't been super aggressive in the past month. But he's, of the three, maybe the most likely to run. There's probably no House member is going to run. So, and, and even if you are going to run, if you're a sitting congressperson, guess what? Nothing's happening in Congress. You are not busy. You can get on the campaign trail today and not shirk your duties as a congressperson. So they should be getting, and everybody else is a former. Former governor, former congressperson, former uh, Trump administration official. They have free time. So if they're not running, uh, I mean, look, to, to run does require some prep work. you got to hit the ground running. you got to have your talking points. you got to have your committees. You need to have your staff. That's something you should be doing. But we all know, and there's been reporting to this effect, they are scared of Trump. They are scared to be attacked by Trump. Uh, and and it does mean that you have to be super duper ready to jump in because he is going to go after you. Uh, but you're number president of the United States. Get ready. Uh, yeah. Why, why you wait what, for him to say that pick up the oxygen? So if Haley does it as as much of a spineless, you know, wishy washy appeal to everybody pander that she's been, kudos for her if she gets in and takes that heat. You know what though? Um, I mean, I think Trump could be devastating on a debate stage. But right now he doesn't have Twitter and maybe now is, I mean, like he has been, Trump has been criticizing uh, Ron Sanctimonious and Nikki Haley and it hasn't been. Less so Haley, even lighter on Haley. It hasn't been devastating. Um, so I don't think, I mean, maybe you, you would say like, what's this going to do to me over the course of the campaign? It's very possible you'll be humiliated by Trump at some point. But I don't think that getting in the race unleashes this torrent of, of, of abuse uh, that's untenable for people. Well, in Haley's case, it might not because she's not a, a real threat yet. Although Trump also has a tendency to punch down, even go to people who are not threats. Um, uh, which, if you're Haley, that should, she should be looking forward to that. She should want Trump to punch down and get her in the press and get some credit for having some some spunk and some moxie. Um, well, this is an interesting thing too, Bill. I mean, I, Trump did go head to head in that debate against Megyn Kelly, you know, when she was moderating the debate. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think Trump kind of destroyed Megyn Kelly, at least with Fox News. Um, but on the debate stage, Carly Fiorina probably acquitted herself better than anybody else on that debate stage against Trump. And she really held her own. And I, I do wonder about the dynamic of Trump going up against a, a female adversary. Um, if it's, I don't know, is it the same? Is it a, a, in a, in a norm for a normal person? It is a different dynamic. Donald Trump is so weird. He, the, the rules don't apply to him. Well, Fiorina, Fiorina's best part in that campaign was when she stood up to Trump. Uh, 
she was a horrible candidate in almost every other respect, and she had no business running for president. She had absolutely no legitimate resume to warrant running for president of the United States. So uh, she's only so much she could do. But taking a hit and you know dishing it back out, like that's how you make a name for yourself uh, running for president. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to get to debates until the summer, uh, but once people get in the race. Things become real. So Trump's throwing some jabs out there against people who are not running yet. That's not going to generate the same kind of news attention. You know, DeSantis is able to largely ignore what Trump is saying. I think he made a little bit of a comment yesterday, but it wasn't even like naming Trump. It was very oblique. It's not it's 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 not that it's going to really become above the fold conflict. But once you're in and there's 2024 news coverage on a regular basis, then the back and forth becomes a lot more. Uh, attention grabbing. Uh, so you you should want that from Trump. You should want you sh you should want that heat, and be prepared for it, and best him. That's that, that's how you beat him. Uh, and we'll see we'll see if once Nikki Haley gets in, if Trump engages directly and if she responds in kind and what and how that helps and if that helps her. But there's like, there's no other path. To getting ahead of a front runner, then beating the front runner, and taking the fight to the front runner. To be the man, you gotta beat the man, <laughs> as Ric Flair famously said. There's something to that. Um, uh, quick aside, Bill. I am reading right from the beginning. Pat Buchanan's. Pat Buchanan. Uh, I guess it's like an autobiography. I think it was written before he ran. Uh, I think it's written in the late '80s. So. Uh, it's right after he worked for Reagan, but a lot of it focuses on his childhood, um, and it's good, really good. So I will keep you posted. I, I think I texted you a couple of screenshots, right, right, uh, of things uh, that I had seen, and I will uh, we'll keep checking in on Pat as I. <laughs> By the way, there is a there, you're, there you're, is you're on a journey. Are you going to read like every you read the entire Pat Buchanan canon now? I've always been fascinated by him, but. You know what got me started on this? Well, he retired his column, but um, there is a Behind the Bastards podcast about him <laughs> <laughs> that got me to uh, to buy to buy that book. Um, uh, one more thing about this: have, have we talked on air about the movie Feed? What's it called? At any point, Feed. I don't think so. So, Feed is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a document. It's a documentary about the 1992 New Hampshire primary. Uh, and I think you can find it on YouTube now, not like officially, but like, I think, I think it's an unofficial version of it on YouTube for a while. You'll look again, like on VHS, you know, I don't even, which I have by the way. Uh, but I don't, I don't think you can get it on DVD or I don't think streams like on Netflix or anything like that. Um, but I did if you Google feed 1992, I think you can, someone pulled it, you can find it on YouTube. Um, and the whole thing was intercepted satellite feed oh. of the presidential candidates. This is, this you is have before. told me about this maybe okay. 10 years ago or something. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, this is before YouTube. This is before the internet. So like getting sort of like caught footage of people was very unusual. Uh, and the whole thing, there's no narration in the documentary. It's just the, it's just. The I mean, what people should know is like, you know, when I used to do TV hits like at CNN, they might hook you up in the earpiece and the lapel mic, and you could be sitting there for 20 minutes before they come to you, right? And so th is that what the, that's... that's a lot, that, that, that's a, a good part of the movie is that, but okay. not everything. Um, but there, there's a lot of that sitting around the TV studio, chatting with people, what are they really like when the cameras are, are you know, the cameras on kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of Pat Buchanan in that movie. So if you're on your Pat Buchanan journey, you should definitely watch that. Does it show the affable, friendly uh, Pat Buchanan that I talked about? Not solely. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a different side, a, dark, a darker, a darker side. Okay, um, Bill. Uh, after we, I think this happened after we recorded last week. I, I, it, you know, time is a flat circle, but I, I believe after we recorded last week. The, uh, the video was released of uh, Paul Pelosi being viciously attacked 
by a dude hitting him with a hammer. Um, we also saw video footage of the dude breaking into Paul Pelosi's house. And we heard the 9-11 dispatch recording of Paul Pelosi's, you know, call, uh, which which raised speculation. Some of the things he said uh, were used as fodder by conspiracy theorists. As you'll remember, Bill, after Paul Pelosi was attacked, some people were joking about it. Other people were even advancing a conspiracy theory that uh, he knew the attacker and, in fact, had been involved in a homosexual liaison uh, with the attacker. And these videos, I would think, I mean, these videos, I would suspect, uh, to any normal person, should should uh, set the record straight on that. Uh, no pun intended. I think that uh, you know it, it 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 it's it's a sign that um, that these conspiracy theories. So I, I think the culture of violence contributes to radicalizing people uh, to commit violence. Um, and then these conspiracy theories that that spring up immediately after an incident that, that do not trust media reports, that do not trust police, um, that do not trust, obviously, politicians. Um, this is part and parcel of like the big lie and everything else in this this kind of post-truth, post-reality world that we live in. I mean, I don't expect most people who push those conspiracies to all of a sudden uh, apologize and, and reassess you know, their life choices. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, there's a Fox news clip where one, I don't, I don't even know what the guy's name was, but he was pushing some of the uh, conspiracy stuff. Uh, the day the video came out and the anchor, uh, the Fox news anchor said, uh, we have the video. It's right here. And, uh, I was like, oh, was he well. pushing it after the video came out or had the video come out while he was on it, air? I think I, I don't know exactly the, the chronology, but I think it came out very, very recently that day. He probably legitimately did not know. Uh, <laughs> but then having seen it, he couldn't. He was clearly discombobulated, but sort of found a way to keep pushing his talking points anyway. He could actually say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I got this completely wrong. Uh, uh and if anyone really should give a really big apology, it's Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, who you push mis misinformation about early, like deleted that tweet, but but silently and never really cop to it. Uh, yeah, there was like a conspiracy. There was a um, a website that was disreputable. Right, that, Santa Monica Observer, I think. That had written uh, the allegations about the tryst and Elon Musk tweeted it saying like, Hey, this is something we should check out. Or I forget how he put it, but, uh, and then he deleted that later. I just, I mean, look, obviously if you're a hardcore extremist, this something like, uh, maybe things are different than they first appear or something. Right. Like right. Like, I mean, if Musk isn't like a super crazy far right winger and obviously your opinion on that, you know, may vary. Um, like you should have some kind of like, gut sense of like what's a good trail to go down like yeah. any reasonable person should say you know what i think the secret homosexual tryst ending in a hammer to the skull theory probably doesn't add up <laughs> there's no yeah. obvious reason to well, believe remember, part of the i don't want to make any i don't want to make any excuses for um for the people who push these theories but again they, they had some fodder, right? So so we didn't have the videos, we didn't have the um the entire transcript of the 9/11 call, but but some things had leaked out um about where like Paul Pelosi was referring to this person as like a, a friend, you know. And it, at the time I wrote at the Daily Beast like, you know, Paul Pelosi A, he's like 82 years old or something. Mm -hmm. B, he's been awakened in the middle of the night. C, He's got a crazy guy in his living room that he's trying to not, uh, you know, he, he's making this call under duress using code language to try to tip off the police without letting the crazy guy know what he's doing. Um, and so I make a lot of allowances, but I, I think that the things that leaked out uh, were, were, were misleading.
If you listen to the, you know, I think they, they leaked out the most um, uh, confusing parts mm-hmm. of, of the call. And, I, and I'm not sure if that was done in, for nefarious reasons or why. I, I have no idea why certain parts of that call were reported. But that did give fodder to people who wanted to raise, like, questions about this. Very whisper. I mean, there was, there was enough in the guy's social media accounts to show that he was like a crazy QAnon type person. So, you know, the Occam's razor conclusion was crazy person does crazy thing. Uh, and, but there's, there's, and look, some, sometimes there's like times in life where the obvious conclusion ends up not being correct. So you, you don't always want to rush to conclusions or just print things, assuming they're fact, they are in fact. So it's okay to be skeptical and want to like make absolutely sure for your own with something, but that's different. Being a little bit skeptical and wanting to pause is different than, I'm skeptical about this obvious conclusion. Let's yeah. push this completely ludicrous conclusion that I have almost no evidence for and see where that goes. Yeah. Um, but the it, same it, people who say that, like, you know, a mass shooting of kid, of children that's just crisis actors or that actually, no, actually Trump won the 2020 election are the same people who were pushing this. And I have to say it was nice to have a video definitively uh, to any sane person make it obvious. Uh, I have to say, I I told David from this when he was on my podcast earlier this week, but right after the attack, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who was convinced that Paul Pelosi was involved in a tryst and that this was, you know, what, what, what people like Musk were kind of pushing. And I said, like, I, you know, I don't think that's the case. Um, It's not, impossible, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of it. And I said, like, if you're right, what that means is that everything we hear from the media is a lie. Everything the police tell us is a lie. Like, I don't know how we have any objective way of knowing anything. Um, maybe actually Prince didn't really die (laughs) how many years ago, maybe like, how do we even know we're here? And this goes to the whole conspiracy theory thing as, as like our, our enemies are so powerful that they can do uh, work their will and do these evil magical things, and yet they can't stop us. We're still, you know, we're still here uh, somehow winning elections. Everyone, how does that work? Uh, but I literally thought to myself, like, if my gut and based on everything I know is that that this conspiracy theory is BS, and these are crazy people as we've seen. But I I told myself, like, if it turns out, if it comes out that that there was really was a tryst, that is going to radically change my world. I'm going (laughs) to then have to become much more conspiratorial and really quite. And and I will say I'm with the people who question everything because there is no way of of discerning uh, anything we're being told if it's true or false. You know, know I don't have to have that um, go through that process, Bill. You know, it's a little unsettling for me. We, I, I, I think I told you when, um, in my book club, we, we just finished up Nixon. So we, 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 you know, we were going in order. So we did, you know, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon. Um, we, we've had enough distance from it. We've had historians go through and look through the, the record. And there's a lot of weird conspiratorial stuff that, that did actually happen with those three guys. I'm not a JFK assassination conspiracy theorist. Um, but, Enough weird stuff did go on that it's very easy to kind of let your mind wander. Yeah. Think, what else might be going on that I don't know about? And so uh, I certainly imagine if you grew up in that era, uh, you might be more inclined towards conspiracy thinking because certain things did prove to be true. Uh, and and some of the stuff gets sort of handed down to people over, over, over time. Uh, but there's a lot less of that really super duper crazy stuff um since that point um or at least stuff that, we, that couldn't be you know reported out i mean like iron contra happened but it was reported you know we figured out essentially what, what happened there uh trump's obviously his own level of craziness but that got reported out in real time and we have a good sense of you know what happened um uh you know things like kennedy contracting the mafia to take out Castro uh, or Nixon 
doing uh, under, undermining LBJ in his peace talks with with Vietnam in the six, during the '68 campaign. Like that stuff didn't fully get a, uh, understood until after the fact. Um, but it's but it's weird. It's and it's it's messed up. Um, but uh, I, I feel like we shouldn't let these. When you when you read all these presidential biographies, it's not like everyone has something like that. Like what happened in that Kennedy to Nixon era, I, I think, is unusual. That's not that's that's not regular in in our the way American government has worked. All right. Well, I have dominated. We're at the forty minute mark, and I've dominated the uh, not the debate, but but the uh, the selection of topics. Uh, <laughs> these are two the first two topics: uh, uh, Nikki Haley and Paul Pelosi. I and our extensive pre taping uh, meeting. Uh, my producers and I did submit those <laughs> two. It's only fair, Bill, that we throw it to you. What do you got? Well, I just wrote for the monthly. Uh, about where the Republican Party is with Ukraine, uh, which I think is interesting on a number of, number of levels. Uh, most fundamentally, I mean, foreign policy has been a source of unity for the Republican Party since the onset of the Cold War. Uh, basically, the whole Cold I mean, the Republicans became really defined as being the uber anti-communists, you know, very happy to jack up military spending uh, to try to out to try to win the arms race, uh, and then you got a period after the Cold War. Where maybe they were a little unsettled, but then nine eleven happens, and now now they're the Uber Hawks take the fight to Iraq, Iran. Um, Democrats are soft and weak, uh, and that becomes a real glue for the party for that period of time. But then. The Iraq war goes sideways. They lose that sense of not just being hawkish, but being competently hawkish. Uh, Obama runs. Iraq was bad, but let's take the fight to Al-Qaeda. We, we, we got Osama bin Laden. You know, his foreign policy record gets, gets messy because Syria is a mess. Uh, and then Trump comes in and he captures this rekindled America first isolationist view, which was a Republican thing, you know, in the pre-World War II, you know, America first, the, the, the whole label starts with, you know, Charles Lindbergh, his movement to keep America out of World War II. Um, and he openly, you know, talks about, you know, we should, you know, you know, Germany is doing great things. You know, we, 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 we don't be on the wrong side. We should be fighting communists. Uh, why should we be opposed to Germany, which of course is where Pat Buchanan lands, um, you know, even after it's all over. Uh, and that view is not the entire view by, of the Republican by the, Party. By, by the way, Bill, uh, sorry to interrupt, but um, you're exactly right. And in reading Pat Buchanan's book, his the autobiography, right from the beginning, um, and by the way, last week I butchered some of the names of his books. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who's paying attention, I, I, I was not, you know, prepared to have a to have that discussion to the degree that we did. Um, I was right in the main, as Candy Crowley might say, but uh, I got some of the book titles wrong. Anyway, um, in his autobiography book, you're you're absolutely right, and he actually makes the point that. Fascism, this is what he argues, fascism can be defeated with a bullet. You take out Hitler, he says, it's over. Hitler, mm -hmm. you know, but communism was this self-perpetuating regime that if you take out Stalin, it doesn't matter. It keeps, it keeps going. And so that's one of the reasons why he viewed communism as much more dangerous than like, say, fascism. Um, he put it more eloquently than that, but mm -hmm. yeah. So, so now you have this new foreign policy challenge, or at least a, a foreign policy challenge that has escalated with Ukraine. Ukraine, you know, was percolating over the course of both the Obama and Trump presidencies. Um, uh, and the Republican Party is not of one mind what to do about it. Uh, you have Mitch McConnell 
and other Senate hawks who have worked with Biden to robustly fund Ukraine. I mean, the last two batches of Ukraine funding were tucked into must-pass, keep-the-government-open bills so they could get they could get to the Senate uh, with you know 10-plus Republicans. And if the House Republicans didn't like it, too bad, because Democrats had the House. Um, and uh, you have re- Republicans, you know, like Trump, like Matt Gates, like Lauren uh, Babert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are mad that McConnell did that. You know, they're mad at the overall price tag, but they're mad that I mean, one of the things that McConnell boasted in the omnibus bill was that we we increased defense funding by ten percent more so than non-defense spending, um, and that's a selling point for Lindsey Graham. It's not a selling point for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and just this past week, this, this to me really encapsulates it. The news comes out that Biden's made a decision to provide these Abrams M1 tanks to Ukraine uh, in conjunction with the other European countries also providing tanks. Lindsey Graham rushes out before Biden, before Biden even speaks publicly on it. Lindsey Graham has an announcement saying, this is fantastic. Wait, this, this is sorely needed. I'm not, I'm not quoting here, but it was an effusive statement. This is the right thing to do. We have to defeat, we have to defeat Russia and China is watching. Um, two days later, Trump posts on True Social, first come the tanks, then come the nukes. We, we could end this war now. You know, this is crazy. Um, Two days after that, Lindsey Graham is campaigning with Donald Trump in South Carolina and says, you don't get Trump policies without Trump. And he, and, and he's, and he, he didn't list the policies he likes. He doesn't mention tax cuts. He mentions foreign, foreign policy. Yeah, that's his. NATO, China, yeah. the wall. Um, doesn't, doesn't say Russia or Ukraine. He lists everything else. But I think but I think Lindsey Graham is is probably making the calculation that he's hedging his bets. And if uh, if Biden wins again or a Democrat wins again, Lindsey Graham is not going to have a lot of influence. If Trump wins again, um, if Lindsey Graham is not in his ear, all he's going to hear is Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert. Right. And, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. So Lindsey Graham has taken one for the team. Uh, and there, there, there's there's a certain rationality there on yes. Graham's part, but I think from what I'm trying to get at is it shows how confused the Republican Party is on Russia Ukraine to a point that totally, yeah. Lindsey Graham can't even talk about it openly. Right, he has to do this dance. Um, so, <clears throat> and that's a problem for if you want America to have a united front against Russia. You want this to not be a point of partisan contention. You want there to be unanimity with the Republicans and Democrats. So it doesn't matter which way the political winds are shifting. They're going to lock arms and do it because it's just it's the right thing to do. Uh, as it stands, there's enough of a bipartisan coalition. There are enough Republican hawks in the Reagan mold for Biden to do what he's doing, um, or at least it was the case over the past two years. If they had to get more funding to the House right now, maybe it's a little touchier. Um, but it's not like, I mean, the Republican voters are split seemingly down the middle from what polling data we've seen on the subject. So whereas Democrats are quite united, so between like United Democrats and exclude Republicans, you have a majority of people who want to help Ukraine. Um, but if things go sideways in Ukraine for a little bit and, you know, there's... It, Russia's making gains, and maybe the American economy takes a downturn. Does that give fresh grist for the skeptic to say, "Hey, why are we throwing our money on this Ukrainian rat hole? We need the money for us." Uh, the, we we're not as positioned to weather that because you have this split in the Republican Party, uh, and and the Republican Party needs needs to figure it out, and they'll, they'll probably do it in the presidential primary, and we don't know. Will there be a will a Nikki Haley, will a Ron DeSantis, will a Mike Pence take that fight to Donald Trump so the Republican electorate can decide 
what is this party when it comes to foreign policy? Uh, Bill, you mentioned Matt Gates. Did you see him this week on uh, Ari Melber's The Beat? I did not. It's good. It's worth seeing. Um, it's rare to see someone like Matt Gates on an MSNBC show these days. So kudos to him for doing it. Um, Ari Melber is a really good interviewer and I think has really kind of come into his own. And um, it's worth seeing. I, I think the most interesting part had to do with the secret deal that Gates uh, cut with uh, Kevin McCarthy. And uh, Melber pressed him on, you know, you keep talking about transparency. Why don't you put out this document, the secret things you negotiated, the parts that are not have not been made public. Gates um, went through and talked about many of the things on that list, but would not claims he doesn't have a copy anymore of the. <laughs> but uh, well, was there anything on the list that's notable? It was interesting. Nothing scandalous, but some of it had to do with like um, committee, you know, committee appointments, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I can't remember all the details, but it was very good TV worth seeing. Um, well, if I can segue to something yeah. that I want to talk about, which is the debt limit stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I felt like you know, McCarthy's comments yesterday were somewhat reassuring. You know, he's saying that they, they want to come to agreement. I think we can find common ground. We shouldn't default on the debt. Um, uh, Social Security Medicare, they're off the table. Like, these are all things that Democrats should be hardened by, not necessarily confident or think there's no, nothing to worry about anymore, but certainly better than temperatures going up and lines being drawn that can't, that, that can't easily, you know, be, be met. Uh, and my initial read on that is somewhat parallel to the Ukraine thing. The Republican Party hasn't decided what it actually stands for here. They, there was all this huffing and puffing about balancing the budget, but they don't really know internally what they want to do to balance the budget. Uh, they, you know, if you take Social Security Medicare off the table, you're talking very large cuts in discretionary spending, defense and or non-defense. Uh, they can't even agree what they want defense-wise, if they want to be defense budget cutters or not. Now, every, uh, I, I've seen so many clips of Republicans in interviews and the interviewer say, will say like, okay, what is it that you like? Can you give me one program or, that you want to cut? And they, they refuse to do it saying that they don't want to negotiate against themselves in public. Um, it'd be nice if they had one thing that they <laughs> could at least say that would be nice to cut. It's not, we're not going to get there with waste, fraud and abuse. I mean, you don't negotiate against yourself by talking about, where you would concede in negotiation, but you should be able to state publicly what you want yes. from negotiation. <laughs> so it's not negotiating against yourself to say, this is what I'm trying to achieve. Yes. And they in, can't fact, even ask, do that. in fact, ask for more than you're <laughs> right. prepared to right. accept. But that is uh, a fundamental problem, right? When it, because nobody wants to cut spending. And so well, if you're a Republican. You go back to the Paul Ryan days. You know, it, it's it's always been hard for Republicans to say what they want to cut because they because they they talk about well we got to cut X number of dollars we got to balance the budget X number of years um, they would say that much but then when you get down to the nitty gritty they would be reluctant because they know we get down to the line items they're popular and so that gives Democrats fodder it's like that's not new but I think what is new is that even internally yeah they don't they don't really know what those line items are. And yeah. They don't really agree on what the line items are. Um, I, and mean, I, saw... I think, you know, as a columnist, sometimes I will write a column and I'll send it to a friend to look at or even sometimes my editor. And they'll say, like, well, that's great. What's the column about? And that's that's a bad thing to hear. You've, I've probably sent you <laughs> uh, I'm having trouble and, and I get that back. What are you trying to say? Like, I've wrote 750 words if if I have it. But, but you know, there's some maxim about, you know, if you have a, a dirty house or a dirty office, uh, maybe that speaks to uh, disorder in your life, right? And <laughs> and if, and I think like with a column, if if it's messy, then your thinking isn't clear yet, right? It, it, that, that says that like, you don't, 
you have it thought through exactly what you want. And it, it's hard to be very successful uh, when you haven't done that, that intellectual work of figuring out exactly what it is that you believe. And so I think this, I think what you're getting at, Bill, is that this is indicative of, of a party that doesn't actually know what it believes. Um, and I well, think yeah, that, I mean, I, I think individual Republicans have done that work, but they don't agree with the, with each other. Yeah. Uh, and so they haven't come to a consensus as a party. What is we're trying to accomplish here? Uh, and they don't have the luxury of time to figure it out because they, they, they you have to pass spending for the next fiscal year for the government to function. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's one thing to say, look, we haven't figured it out yet. Let's take some time to figure it out. But then don't come in guns a blazing on day one saying we're going to have this big standoff with Biden about cutting spending when you don't even know what you want to cut yeah. or how much you want to cut. You know, the only thing that they were able to say on the onset was we got to balance the budget in 10 years with no comprehension of what that, what is that really necessary? Is it, why is that number so special? Um, what do you really accomplish with balancing the yeah. budget? That's so important. And even if it, and if it is important, how do you get from point A to point B? Um, Part of the problem, too, is, you know, think of brands, right? So like Southwest is the low fare airline. You know, presidents get a line at best. George Washington, father of the country. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, held the union together. Ronald Reagan defeated communism. But like, what is the Republican Party? Are they like a populist party who wants to um, reward uh, working class voters and people? Or are they a party that wants to be fiscal hawks and balance the budget and, and cut the debt? Like, or are, do they care about um, projecting American strength and values internationally? Or do they want to be in isolation? Like, like, we don't know, actually, which of these. I mean, part of the problem is that Donald Trump did reorder the party in some ways, but he is also incoherent mm-hmm. and schizophrenic. So mm-hmm. he doesn't really have a coherent worldview. And so he, the person... Well, Trump does have... Trump has some pieces of it, I think, though. He does... I think he has a genuine foreign policy America first view. It may be somewhat uh, adulterated with his personal ego, but it is it is in the sort of Charles Lindbergh mold that we should... And it's not even like America first. We don't care about the rest of the world. It's America first. Let's be friends with nasty countries so we can do what we want. Uh, uh, but we don't even know that. Sometimes America first is bombing the shit out of them. Well, Sometimes America we're... first is butting up. And somebody, there's so many of these books. I don't read most of them. But there was a book recently where I think John Kelly, I listened to a podcast about this. Reportedly, John Kelly um, was so afraid that Trump was going to start a nuclear war mm-hmm. with North Korea that he talked Trump into like, you know, what would really make you popular is if you were able to do what no one else could do, which is you're the ultimate deal maker. If you mm-hmm. could cut a deal with Kim. And so that's when the love letters started and the big mm-hmm. summit or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I. I get your point, but like, what does America first mean? You know, is America first, we dominate everybody else or is America first, let's just mind our own business, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it, it, it cleanly applies to whether you are willing to use military force or not, but it definitely is, let's engage the world in a way that has no, uh, we're having a sense of international responsibility towards the well-being of other peoples. Yeah, is not important. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not Wilsonian. You know, no, we're not trying to spread, spread democracy or, or or anything like that. That's fair. Um, that's fair. But so I think so. I think Trump has that, and Trump has don't mess with Social Security, Medicare because our people like it. It's not worth your time, which is in effect, a retreat from libertarianism. He's basically saying, look, stop. We're, we're not a libertarian party. We're not about small government for small government's sake. That's not the driving force here. Um, and, that, and that leads you into some of the culture war type stuff that he has been more willing to, to, um, to prosecute. Uh, so if the Republican Party 
is not into internationalism and democracy promotion, and it's not fundamentally libertarian, then what is it as it pertains to the budget? I mean, you could say, well, we're, we fight you know, uh, transgender rights and we fight, we fight abortion and we fight critical race theory. That's, those are animating principles, maybe, but that doesn't give it, that doesn't give a whole much to work with budget wise. Those aren't the big price tag. No contrary. Right? We, we, we get our money by cutting uh, programs that are woke. But like, but even that's like, where we find many, the money. How, how many, how many line items you can even like, make a straight <laughs> argument that these are woke programs? No. Um, a lot of waste, fraud and abuse. So this is a slide that apparently came out of the Republican Study Committee that uh, this was tweeted by um, Olivia Beavers, who works for, um, excuse me, um, she is at Politico. Um, and so, so the Republican Study Committee is a majority faction of the Republican conference in the House, very hard right. Uh, so they have, they have their own fiscal year budget that promotes social security privatization and Medicare privatization and, and means testing and raising the retirement age. So there's sort of tr some traditional libertarianists uh, in that. Um, but this was a slide where they said this is what they want out of this whole debt limit discussion. Reverse recent increases in overall discretionary spending and institute statutory limitations on annual discretionary spending levels. So some kind of some kind of cap. Um, enact a package of inflation-busting reforms to increase domestic energy capacity and reduce associated regulatory and permitting barriers. So there was some permitting reform talk that Manchin was pushing earlier. So there's a certain amount of bipartisan interest in that. Is that a big deficit driver? I doubt it. Um, fight inflation, the onset of a Democrat-induced recession by ending the national COVID-19 emergency, increasing workforce participation, advancing targeted paid for pro-growth tax policies, paid for tax policies, uh, and countering over-regulation with common sense guardrails like the RAINS Act. Okay, so some deregulation, ending the emergency, Biden's is gonna end the emergency, maybe on a little slower path that Republicans want, but that's not even a part of partisan contention at this point, paid for tax policy, that's cutting taxes while cutting spending. Again, no numbers here. Um, ensure an increase in the debt ceiling is accompanied by commensurate spending reductions, including through rescissions of Democrats' recent excessive spending. Now, mind you, the omnibus bill just passed, but it had Republican votes on it in the Senate. Um, so that's sort of like, okay, you're going to raise the debt limit in, in like mathematical conjunction with spending cuts. Well, that's not, that's not going to happen because the spending cuts would be way too big. Um, uh, so that's sort of like a non-serious ask. Um, and there's a limited wasteful span, duplicative program, exam ways to fight waste, fraud, and abuse. As you know, there's not a lot of money really there. Um, and establish a long-term fiscal control focused on reducing spending to restrain the growth of our federal debt. So again, this is more sort of fuzzy cap type talk that, you know, maybe you can come up with something that is kind of light that, that Biden might find acceptable that, that doesn't go as far as maybe these guys want to go because they don't bring numbers on stuff. So I feel like, like within their own, this is the harder right faction, majority faction, it's not the teeny tiny Freedom Caucus faction. Um, there's this sort of vague, we should cut spending. But they really can't even put a lot of their own teeth into it. There's vague talk of capping and statutory stuff. But if that's like their marker, that gives McCarthy a lot of leeway to kind of deal with Biden that's in pretty light. And he can say, like, look, I, I do what you wanted me to do. I, I was in the ballpark. I didn't violate your principles. You didn't give me that much to work with. That, that's So I kind of feel like that's kind of where we're going here. All right. With the only with the, the lone caveat that you could have five Republicans be unhappy about it and try to force a vacate the speaker motion. Um, but you're not even seeing from the Gates of the world, Gates, Babert, Taylor Green, what well, Kevin's with McCarthy, but uh, good, Biggs, Rosendale, 
they haven't come out saying like this is really our bottom line. If you violate this, we're gonna fire you. You know that. I mean, maybe maybe it's gonna happen. I, I feel McCarthy is in kind of a climb down mode because he doesn't have that kind of stiff pressure on the right flank about what he needs to do. All right. Well, we are over an hour, but we might as well end on that somewhat happy note. Bill, <laughs> anything uh, you want to plug? I check out my piece of the monthly about uh, Republicans in Ukraine uh, and watch more of, of the monthly because that's uh, that's my home. Uh, check out my podcast with David Fromm um, and check out, I had uh, Hiram Lewis, no relation. He's a professor and uh, he co-wrote this book about uh, how the left and the right are a myth. So not only should we not be calling Marjorie Taylor Greene a conservative, we shouldn't be calling her the right. And I have to say I was skeptical until I talked to him and it's a pretty compelling argument he makes. So I would recommend check out that podcast. And Matt Lewis in the news. Do you cite the example of how Matt Lewis is now solely consuming far left podcasts? <laughs> that is exhibit A, Bill Share. So check that out. This is, this uh, is, Mochi, this is Mochi, by the way. What's that? I was watching, I was watching at home. This is Mochi. Oh, yeah. you're, 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 Bill's, Bill's holding his, his cat. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a zoo over there, it is. Bill. It is. You've the got a uh, level zoo. Uh, Bill, share. There's a dog now in the picture, too. Yeah, yeah. So. Mochi and, you know, Mochi and Nova for our pals. All right. Uh, great show. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Please uh, go to youtube.com slash Matt Lewis if you haven't already. Subscribe, like our videos, follow us on Twitter at DMZ Show, and we'll see you back here in the DMZ next week. Take care. See ya.